Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. title of today's message is The Dangers of Drifting. For those of us living in New Jersey, or at least the East Coast, we have a very good understanding of the beach life. Even if you don't live near the beach, it's still a very New Jersey thing. Now, I don't know about you, but, the, but this is the perfect timing. We just celebrated Memorial Day, so I'm sure all of you guys know about the beach or have been to the beach this weekend. Everybody go to the beach this weekend? I'm just curious. I didn't. I'm not a beach person, but Try to humor me, if you will. So imagine, if you will, you're at the beach. You go into the water. You turn your back on the shore. You turn around and look. And to your amazement, that's all, all your stuff is gone. Someone stole all of your stuff. They took your beach bag, your chair, your favorite book you haven't been dying to get through. You wait a long time to just sit there, read, and dig in. Now it's all gone. Of course, that didn't happen. Instead, you either just lost track of your stuff as you were busy enjoying your time in the water, or you just drifted away from your things. The natural gravitational pull of the water pulled you either left or right. You take a deep breath, look to your right, and realize that your stuff was exactly where it was supposed to be. Crisis averted. I don't have to call the police. That could have been a very long and annoying kind of day of a beach day with lots of paperwork. I'm sure Pastor Joe can attest to police paperwork, and it's not a good thing. (laughs) So what am I talking about? I'm talking about drifting away. Drifting is natural if you're in the water having fun on the beach. But we can also drift away when it comes to our faith. Drifting is natural. Unless you keep track of where you are or work against the current, you can easily find yourself far from where you started. In other words, doing nothing can result in movement. Unless you have actively opposed the drift, you will end up somewhere you didn't intend to be. Natural drifting by itself can be dangerous. Even more so, there are two kinds of drifting, either on accident or on purpose. Now, drifting can happen with doctrine as well. Because of our natural tendency toward apathy and inattention, as well as the powerful currents present in our culture, we are always in danger of drifting from the truth. Our backgrounds, personalities, habits, and even our church traditions, all these areas make us susceptible to certain errors more than others. If we do not accept the reality of drift and actively oppose it, we will inevitably move away from certain beliefs and practices. So let's pay close attention to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. In this case, we must take heed to biblical faithfulness, or we run the risk of drifting away from the faith. This is crucial to understand. If we allow ourselves to drift, we may be lost at sea for a time, 
But at some point, we may be shipwrecked towards heresy. And because drifting is usually hard to spot and even harder to catch, we can be put in danger of, of drowning before we even know we've been drifting. Let us now review what is heresy so we have a clear understanding of what we're talking about. Heresy is defined as false teachings that were never taught by Christ or his apostles and teachings that deviated from Scripture and the apostles. Now, now that we have an understanding of what that means, I want to take you to the four conversations. As we go through this sermon together, I would like to play a game. Now, as I say game, I'm sure Katie just cringes a little bit because our game playing together consists of board games or card games, which is slightly less than fun, at least for her. When she deals with me, I am less than, shall we say, charitable when it comes to game playing, perhaps too competitive. I'm sure my responses are way too conservative. You can ask her when the sermon's over. But in this case, I will be charitable. We are going to examine together four conversations. Four young people gathered at a Christian conference. In each conversation, I'm going to lovingly challenge you to spot the problem. Let's flex our apologetic muscles a little bit and see if we can identify the issues of each, with each of the, as they speak. I would like you to meet Hannah, Daniel, Michael, and Sarah. Each of them has a certain point of view. Play, pay close attention to each. Now, the first person we're going to look at is Hannah, and she's just going through the motions. I don't feel much of anything, Hannah confesses to her friends. They nod, grateful for her vulnerability in describing the state of her spiritual life. I go to church. I read my Bible because that's what I'm supposed to do. I don't pray as much as I should, probably. But hey, I'm still attending church even when I don't get much out of the sermon. Daniel responds to Hannah. We all go through dry spells. I've been there myself, and I'm sure we've all been there. But the good news is you aren't going through anything that believers haven't experienced throughout the ages, including the psalmists. Sarah responds with, that's true, but let me ask you this, Hannah. Do you want to feel closer to the Lord? Hannah pauses for a moment with mist in her eyes. She begins to tell her friends of the stories of her faith in the beginning of her spiritual journey, where she felt most on fire. Certain songs made her cry. She enjoyed spending time in God's word. She decided to go to church. She waited in anticipation for the Lord to speak to her through the service. But those days are gone. I guess that's how it is in the beginning, she says. Sometimes I feel like I should file a missing persons report on when I think about who I used to be. As she talks with her friends, she makes it clear that even though she doesn't feel close to the Lord, and even though she struggles to muster up the energy to serve others, and finds it almost impossible to talk about her faith, She's going to be fine. Of course, and by the way, the word of course is key to this whole thing. They're all going to say this. Of course, I still believe in Jesus. Hannah reassures them, I haven't changed my beliefs. Maybe something will come along that can help me just going through the motions. That's one hope I have for this conference. Until then, I will just keep doing what I'm doing. 
So here's a question. Question: How would Hannah drift from the faith? Hannah has endured a time of spiritual drought. A time when Christian truths that once stirred her affections no longer move her. Many Christians go through the same thing. They experience spiritual dryness from time to time. It's around this time that God seems distant. Sometimes this distance can be because of sin in their lives as well as some sort of suffering or some sort of suffering. Sin hardens our heart and dulls our senses, which in turn makes us not respond properly to the word of God. And suffering can contribute to our responses to God in one of two ways. It can either force us into his loving arms, arms so wide they can completely envelope us, or it can force us away from God. Our suffering can harden our hearts, which forces us to turn away from him. Whatever passion we have for God in this place of suffering can quickly extinguish that exquisite fire. Now, in regards to how this affects the faith, Hannah can accept a Christian walk with no life and get used to accepting a relationship with God that really isn't a relationship at all. A sense of closeness that just is not present. She will go through the rituals of the Christian life while silently lose the passion of her service and worship of the Lord. There's another danger. And this danger is to figure out that something is missing in her spiritual life. Instead of doubling down and pursue the Lord harder by ways of looking back at the faith, studying and practicing parts of the Christian life that she never knew or thought about, she will start to look for other beliefs that on the surface seem innovative and maybe even cutting edge to infuse her dying spiritual life. She might even accept other beliefs looking for a good jumpstart to her faith. Even worse, it might fall right into a mishmash of questionable beliefs and practices. Now, let's go to Michael. Now the conversation now shifts to him, and he's just living for the faith. You know, the problem may be you just aren't serving others enough. The Christian life is all about doing the right thing no matter how you feel about it. Studying the Bible, knowing theology is great and everything, but I am more of a practical guy. Theology is for thinkers, and I'm a doer. I really admire your passion for the practical, Hannah replies. Sarah nods, yeah, what's the point of believing all the right things if it doesn't lead to a changed life? Exactly, Michael says again. Every morning, Michael reads a snippet or two from the Bible to glean some wisdom that might guide him through his day. But his uh, focus is living the faith and not parsing through the intricacies. That's why I don't get into all the details of doctrine, he tells the group. Most of them just cause division anyway. Theology can distract us from just living it out. He then begins to vent his frustrations with Christians who focus too much on dogma, who are thinkers who complicate everything. Of course, I believe all the important stuff. I just think you need to keep it simple, just the basics. Now, after a pause, it's clear that Daniel is uncomfortable with Michael's perspective. There is a sense, though, that everyone is a theologian, right? We all operate with a view of God, a view of ourselves, and the world. And getting the details right, well, that's a matter for our faith and practice. 
Michael nods and waves his hand. I'm not saying that the theology is unimportant. Have you ever heard this before? I've even seen this. I'm not saying, like the whole wag in the hand, like, ah. I'm not saying that the theology is not important. It just matters most is not what you say you believe, but what you do. Love God and love others. It's as simple as that. So the question comes along. How would Michael drift? Michael assumes that Christianity is true, but doesn't put the time into digging deep and understanding the fundamentals of theology, which are still quite important. He would rather focus on whatever works. Michael is a practical guy and would rather focus on the living out of the faith than understanding the deeper truths. Essentially, he believes those who spend time on the deeper intricacies and can apply them to, be the, to the practical are wasting their time. He also sees them as small and insignificant. Focusing on doctrinal scuffles and theological matters is a distraction to the main point of Christianity, which is loving God and loving others. But Michael is in danger of drifting in two ways. Having a neutral attitude towards sound teaching can make them vulnerable towards false teaching. Failure to be grounded with deep roots of Christian doctrine can make them susceptible to false teachings or even cult-like teaching, which is fundamentally rejects biblical Christianity. And in my studies in apologetics, that's all over the place. Michael, and though similar to how he thinks, can also drift in the direction of complacency in their works. In other words, if one doesn't believe that the things we do is because of him who sent them, done in the name and in the glory of Christ, then our deeds will turn into something sentimental. They turn into good deeds that anyone can do at any time for whatever purpose. Let's go to Matthew twenty-seven, nineteen, the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now let's break down why that's important. Who has been given the authority? Christ our Lord. What is he asking us to do? Go into all the world and baptize in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Teaching them what? To observe the things that he has commanded us to do. It's not a suggestion not a footnote, not advice, not something to say in passing, but what he has commanded us to do. And where is he? With us even to the end of the age. That means at all times he is with us. And why? Because Jesus is Lord. Amen? I said amen? Amen. Everybody needs to wake up. Amen? All right, I'll take it for now. If none of what I just said isn't true... If I, then why not become a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist? And why not just do good deeds and good works just for the sake of anything at all? Matthew chapter 23, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness. Believers who focus on only doing good or just living out their faith without emphasizing on the truth they confess and believe really spread their faith to others in an effective manner. This is almost a generational curse in a sense. 
The first generation knows the why and what to do, which is essentially the gospel. The second generation knows the what but loses the why. The third generation loses both the what and the why. And sadly, I think we are experiencing the third generation misstep right now. As time goes by, if we don't explain thoroughly and robustly what is important and why is important, then we give away to a generation of believers who just turn into good citizens, raising a generation of children who are polite but have no frame of reference or reason for being that way. We have a generation of nice people but very shallow roots of faith. So, person number three is Daniel. Now, let's take a second and go back to Daniel's response to Michael and see how he is in danger of drifting. As we just examined, Michael focused too much on just doing the basics and not worrying about theology. Reviewing Daniel's response after a pause, it's clear that Daniel is uncomfortable with Michael's perspective. There is a sense, though, that everyone is a theologian, right? We all operate with a view of God, a view of ourselves and the world, and getting the details right, well, that's a matter of, to our faith and practice. It's not so simple with me, Daniel says. Sometimes it's hard to love God and love others when you feel like your faith is contradicting their deepest beliefs. That's why I focus on parts of the Christianity that real, that's real honest with people. I stress the positive. Of course I believe it all. There's that of course again. Of course I believe it all. Even the hard-to-swallow teachings. But I don't go there unless someone asks me. Sarah asks him about some of the cultural challenges Daniel faces. He proceeds to list off the most common objections. Christians are intolerant, allegedly, Christians are intolerant, I'm sorry, intolerant because you believe Jesus is the only way to God, or your God can't be loving if you really think there is a hell, or your church discriminates because you don't perform same-sex weddings. Hannah replies, most people making a case for Christianity these days are going to run into these objections. And Daniel responds, yeah, it's tough. When I have these conversations, I try to show them I am uncomfortable with some of the Christianity's teachings as they are. It's more human that way, more vulnerable and authentic. To be honest, I would love for Christianity or the Bible to be different in some places. I think it's important to let people know that I'm like everyone else, just wrestling with the hard stuff. That seems super offensive these days. So, the question now is to be asked is, how would Daniel drift? Daniel is the guy who would introduce Jesus to his fellow students, expresses discomfort with the challenging teachers of the faith. Even though he stays committed to the unpopular parts of Christianity, he thinks it is best to, to suppress those beliefs. He takes a more of a humanist approach. Humanism is good in the sense that it appears to help people with all of their struggles, but since humanism has more of an atheistic approach, they don't serve the law or the will of God. They serve themselves under the guise of serving others, since they don't believe in a God, or maybe they believe in a false God, or even worse, they believe themselves as God. They have an attitude of anything goes without consequences. This is dangerous. It takes the guise of helping people and loving others, but it marches them straight to hell because it doesn't acknowledge or believe in the one true God. Romans 1 chapter, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. Daniel thinks he will gain more ground if he takes a position that appeases the masses with parts of the faith he struggles with. He would take up a false notion of, of, of uh, things even worse neutrality as he engages those who don't believe. Another way he would drift is to alter the basic and biblical foundations altogether. Since there are varying opinions on how the faith is supposed to be, and since he can't possibly know with any certainty what the true foundational biblical Christianity is, that position frees him up from the burden to be tied to any position at all. He can rest on the knowledge that there is no final knowledge. This is the path to agnosticism where he could officially remain a biblical Christian. He might even affirm it with his mouth, but have no real reason or desire to defend the true biblical Christian faith. In my personal opinion and experience, this is a dark form of the philosophy of Socrates. He famously said, all that I know is that I know nothing. I think this is a good position to be in regards to learning new things and being open to learn certain things, but one cannot stay there. At some point, one must move to certainty. Agnostics like to sit on this position. And the word certainly is not only a bad word to them, certainty, but it is a stark contrast to what they believe in. In other words, agnostics will never arrive to certainty because in their worldview, certainty doesn't exist. This give, even gives way to a certain form of skepticism. Recently, I and a few other people from our church had the pleasure of seeing Dr. Frank Turek live at Calvary Old Bridge. And he is a great apologist who has influenced me in a number of ways. And he has famously said, have you ever noticed how skeptics don't seem to be skeptical of their skepticism? Think about that for a minute. Okay, person number four is Sarah. Now this one's a toughie, but I have faith that you guys are going to see where the issues are. I'm so excited to see what happens with my church. She, she is a part of a core team committed to planning a church in a major city in the south of the USA. The pastors are incredible, and the needs in the community are massive. She seems to be very excited as she says this, with an infectious and warm smile. The church plans on incorporating different styles of music in the worship services. The pastoral team, I'm trying to get really excited, right? The pastoral team is intentional about ethnic diversity, so they will reflect the demographics of the community. There's really no church like it in the area. She hopes to lead an initiative to serve disadvantaged families in the city. Yay! All good stuff. So then Daniel asks her, what are your plans for seeing people far from God come to faith? And that is the key question. Well, that's the main thing, of course. The gospel is behind everything we do. It's the reason why we want to get involved in the community. And it's why we want to be a diverse and service-oriented congregation. Believe me, we are committed to the basics. We're just going beyond that and all we want to do. We will build on that. The conversation goes to other aspects of the church that she's excited 
about the most. Sounds very, very a politician, doesn't he? Doesn't it? Believe me, we are committed to the basics. We're just going to go beyond that and all we want to do. Why aren't you guys laughing? Now, how would Sarah drift? She is also in danger from drifting away from the faith. And at first sight, it may be hard to see how she would drift. She shows, shows enthusiasm about her new church plant. She's excited about making good differences in the world. Everything she says looks like the opposite of what would be considered spiritual dullness. But where she could falter is assuming that Jesus is at the center of her church when he, in fact, is not. She seems disinterested in the miracle that matters the most, the conversion of one sinner into a saint, that very moment when that one person is struck by the gospel and moves from darkness to light, from death to life, and has a miracle of rebirth. Sarah is vulnerable to drifting away from the centrality of the gospel by putting the impact of the gospel front and center. She gets more excited about all the good the church can do than what the Holy Spirit can do, which is saving someone from sin. It turns the power of the Holy Spirit that saves us from our sin to work that the church does instead of the Holy Spirit making good works more of a man-made thing than that of a supernatural thing. Obviously, she affirms the importance of the gospel and the need for people to be converted individually, but she can make the mistake of a good cause more central than Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Christianity can become a means to an end for Sarah, making Christianity just an instrument to further that end. She misses the trees for the forest. She, uh, she can see Christian truths as something she can assume but no longer needs to explore because to her, the real action is what the church does. So think about that for a minute. The church is important. We need the church. We need the plant and all that kind of stuff. But we have to ask ourselves, what is driving the church? Is it God or is it our efforts or or even worse, our works. You know, our works are good if it's in line with the will of God. But if we make the mistake of just kind of putting that aside and just saying, I'm going to do, 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 where's the Holy Spirit in that? So, how then do we respond? As we just examined, although these people are in danger of drifting, they are far from drifting intentionally. This, however, is the danger of drifting. It can happen so sudden that we don't see it coming. This is precisely why we must look back at the shore and push back against the currents. We must realign with the truth that doesn't move, which is Christ and all of his heavenly glory. So then, like I said earlier, how shall we respond? How can we make sure not to drift? And if we do drift, how can we stop it and change course? Okay? And I'm sure, like I said, there are times where we're at least, if we're not drifting, we're getting pushed upon. 
Number one, we must respond with faith and not fear. Jude chapter 1, 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Number two, be on guard. If there are any fencers here, you know what on guard means. But in general, be on guard. We must put on the armor of God every single day. Number three, exert energy and contend for the faith. Jude chapter 1, verse 1. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which is once for all delivered to the saints. Contend means to fight for the faith as a boxer, like a martial artist, or like a warrior would. Earnestly means being very sincere, putting forth genuine effort in a serious manner. Number four, push against the current. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 to 12. And we desired that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So, there's a Greek word known as orthismos, and it comes from the Greek uh, which means to push, shove, to pull, to put your back into it. And it comes from the literal Greek battle formation known as the phalanx, heavily using spears and shields. And that's what they would do in battle. Shields to slam, thrust with the spear, or push. And not to get into the details of what that is, I'll probably get into it another time, but when you understand the formation, that's exactly what it's about. Number five, holding our own as the waves crash gives us spiritual energy. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And again, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is the, who is the who, he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So, I'm going to leave you with a brief sto- story. Okay? In ancient Greece, in 480 BC, the fledgling Greek city-states were in danger of er eradication. The Persian king Xerxes, son of King Darius, demanded that each city-state give them a sign of submission. This sign, which was water mixed with sand, if given to the king of Persia, would show those mercy. Those who did not 
will be shown no mercy on the battlefield. When it was time for Sparta, led by King Leonidas, to give the sign of submission, instead he sent them a letter with just two words, Molon Lave, which translates as, come and take it. The Persian king marched his troops to meet the Spartans on the battlefield. And for three days, the Spartans harassed and gave the Persians defeat after defeat. When the day came and when the Spartans were defeated, a plaque was raised on the battlefield that read, Go tell the Spartan stranger, passerby, that here, obedient to their laws, we lie. I say, be obedient to the Lord, be obedient to his law, and fight like mad to keep from drifting. Thank you. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.